Welcome to Tech Intersect. I'm your host, Tanya Evans, and my life and work exist at the heart of law, business, and technology. Yeah, I've earned a few fancy titles and degrees over the years, but the bottom line is I'm a writer, speaker, teacher, and lifelong learner. And I'm really excited that you've joined me on this journey. So what is Tech Intersect? Well, it's authentic, empowering conversations with really interesting guests who demystify complex topics to prepare you for the future, because your future is now. And it exists where law, business, and tech intersect. Get ready to listen, learn, and leverage. Let's get started. In this episode of Tech Intersect, I welcome Ann T. Griffin a human and product manager in that order, as she says. (laughs) She studied engineering at the University of Michigan. She's really passionate about the human aspects of technology and building machine learning and artificial intelligence products rooted in the realities of the human experience. She's also an emerging tech correspondent for Tech 2025, which is a platform and community for learning about and discussing emerging technologies such as AI, ML, Internet of Things, and all of the Web 3.0 things. And incidentally, Tech 2025 is a company founded by another amazing Tech Intersect guest, Charlie Oliver. So go back and listen to episode four to hear my conversation with Charlie about the future of technology. Anne's current focus is on exploring what fairness means at a product level and how teams can integrate empathy and awareness of the impact of bias into the creative and development process. She has worked with many major companies, including Microsoft, American Express, Comcast, and Colgate-Palmolive, so her background and expertise make her uniquely qualified for the work she does today. She's also a great friend of mine, and so I'm really excited to share this conversation with you. Time to listen, learn, and leverage, so let's get started. Today, I'm honored to welcome Ann T. Griffin, a tech and inclusion expert to Tech Intersect. She also happens to be a phenomenal woman, a dear friend, and she's also someone who is passionate about the human aspects of technology and building machine learning and AI products rooted in the realities of the human experience. We don't often hear about the human experience, so I'm excited about that. We'll hear about all of that and more in this conversation. Anne, welcome. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. I'm really excited to be on the podcast. Thank you. I'm so glad that you said yes. And I think the world of you and all the stuff that you're doing. So I'm excited to share that with my listeners. And before we even get into the substance of what we want to talk about in terms of tech and bias and inclusion, tee up your origin story. So, uh, you know, like what led you to the tech space and uh, what do you find most compelling about being in the tech space? What's your your origin story? Yes. So I was exposed to STEM, which for people who aren't aware of what STEM is, I think most people who are listening to the podcast probably are, but you know, science, technology, engineering, math from my parents. So my dad's actually an electrical engineer. My mom is a PhD chemist. And when it came time for me to think about what I was interested in when I got to college is around the time the iPod was first released. And I thought it was one of the coolest things I had ever mm-hmm. seen. And I thought to myself, I want to design things like that. And I knew I needed a te- to continue with a technical background to be able to do that, even though I kind of knew at the time 
I wasn't necessarily going to be a full-time programmer and I was willing mm-hmm. to do that if that's what I needed to do to be able to build things like that. But I ended up down a path that led me to product management eventually. So I studied engineering in college and after college ended up being able to do product management, which is really getting to work on cross-functional teams with the developers, the designers, the business people, lots of really talented people to be able to build a hardware or software or combination of both type of products. And that's the kind of thing that really got me into tech, got me really excited. And it's just something that for me, I've always wanted to do. And obviously there's a lot that happened between then and now and a lot of very hard work and a lot of struggle, but I'm really genuinely happy with what I do. Absolutely. And for those who don't understand what a project manager does, can you say a bit more about that? A product manager, which is a little different than a project manager, is the the product manager, we do a number of things. And one of the core things is we often figure out the why behind what we're building, not just what Mm. to build. We will decide what to build, but we identify the core problem of what the customer needs or wants, essentially. And we work with people who are from anything from user research, content strategy, UX design, technology, sometimes even with people in law themselves to best understand how do we break this problem up into things that are buildable features. And we are also the people who, when we said the why, is also figuring out which of these features we're going to build. We can't necessarily build everything. And so we have to have a source of organization and how do we prioritize these things and decide what we're going to build. And kind of going back to that first iPod, they couldn't necessarily build what we have on today's iPhone as the first version as right. of the iPod. And so figuring out how are you going to decide what goes on the iPod, it's going to have playlists. It's going to, you press a button, it's going to play music and you can pause. It was actually very fundamental functional features on that first version. And they were able to iterate off of that. And that's kind of a core thing that a product manager does is figure out like, what does the customer need and want? And of those things, what are we going to build and why? And then also I would say finding that harmony between what's going to make money for the business and also what benefits the customer. And I think one of the key things I like to focus on as a product manager is how do you do that in a way that doesn't exploit the customer? Right. That's important. And you you said a number of things that are very important. And I want to stick a pin in them because they're going to become relevant in terms of some of the things we'll talk about later. One, you identified through product management that you're not building in isolation, but Mm -hmm. that 1.0 iteration of whatever product you're working on is building on an overall plan, right? Where we ended up now. Sometimes I I think of some of the things I've said about the build and we could have never conceived of where we are now 10 years before. It's like, actually, that's not accurate. I'm going to fact check myself on that. There actually, in many instances, is a decided plan of managing from whatever your 1.0 version is to how you intend to build out and then scale up. And so there's a the process. You're not operating in isolation, but everything is an incremental step. And then we look up 10 iterations later and it's like, wow, this overnight success is like, well, was yeah. it, you know? Yeah. It reminds me a little bit because you were a professional tennis player yes. for a while and mm-hmm. you have to think about when you first stepped on the court, people didn't expect you to play at the level Mm -hmm. where Serena is now. 
It's, right. you know, they give you a racket and they probably have some sort of exercises you do with that. And they build up in terms of what your skills are. Once you have the core right. set of skills, you know, they increase the difficulty of your competition. You get professional coaches, your types of workouts you do. And it all ends up being this roadmap to being this professional tennis player. Right. No, that's absolutely right. Right. That's a good reminder. So that leads me to talking about some, you know, we've mentioned the build and Web 3.0. One, let's level set a bit before we move on and talk about what technologies exist in quote unquote Web 3.0, because you have a lot of those in your background and expertise as well. And then we'll move from that to some of the, the challenges and concerns more specifically about bias and inclusion in the space. But first, what is Web 3.0? What technologies make up Web 3.0? And then we'll move from there. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step guide to starting your podcast today. Yeah, so the ones I've worked with the most are AI artificial intelligence, machine learning, and as well as blockchain. And I'll say artificial intelligence has a very large scope. Mm-hmm. You can say it touches a lot of things. Within that bubble, you can also say there's like machine learning. There's a lot of other things within the bubble, also like specific things such as natural language processing, right. general artificial intelligence, which is what a lot of people think of when they think of machines that are coming alive and thinking for themselves. And we also talked about blockchain, which you and I got connected a little bit around this because we actually met at the blockchain house at South by Southwest. And you being in law, and I worked at a a startup called Open Law, also dealing with a lot with smart contracts because I've worked a lot with a public blockchain. And that's how they on Ethereum deal with this trustless system. Perfect. Perfect. And we could do, and we, I hope will do an entirely new episode on blockchain. I know a lot of, I've spoken at a high level, particularly in these early episodes about blockchain, but I haven't yet done a blockchain 101. Maybe that's a good AMA, ask me anything session we can team up on uh, in the future, but that's a good way to level set about what is even included. And I like very much what you say in terms of breaking down artificial intelligence, because that's not a one size fits all. It's not my area of expertise either, but the machine learning, natural language, all sorts of other things go into that. So for those who want a deeper dive on that, and specifically for Advantage Evans members, I'll include some more information about that in the show notes after so that you can kind of take a deeper dive and get more acclimated. But given that in Web 3.0, and we're talking about AI, machine learning, Internet of Things, which I forgot about, uh, blockchain and distributed yes. ledger technologies, crypto, these are all tools, right? Technology is a tool. And many people talk about tools as being agnostic, but we do have human interaction in coding and the structure and inclusion in who even makes decisions about the next step for these technologies. And so there is this great concern, and I know you spend a lot of time thinking, writing, and speaking about bias 
in technology yes. generally, but in AI uh, in particular, and I suspect blockchain. Talk to us about some of those challenges about bias in the build of Web 3.0. Yes. So one of the things that keeps being written about and talked about in the Web 3.0 world is this this idea of automation. And not just the idea of what's also currently happening, but also where that's going to go in terms of how people are going to work with bots in the future, how mm. the certain decision-making is already being automated. And two people who talk a lot about this already are Dr. Sophia Noble, who is the author of Algorithms of Oppression. And mm. then we have Virginia Eubanks, which is Automating Inequality. And they both bring up this the idea that comes from big tech that these tools are neutral. When in fact, you have things where Dr. Safiya Noble talks about how about 10 years ago, if you put in why are black women so into Google, it would suggest things like angry or mm. lazy. And that's bias. That's taking people's bias and encoding it into the system. And when people like you and me go to Google, which they've changed it just because after so much backlash over a period of time, they've had to change it. But their mm. initial response was, well, this is neutral. It's not anything that we can do about it. And I mean, number one, that's not true. It's not neutral. And it's also, there's not nothing that Google with all the money that they have can't do about it. But also right. it create, when you and I use it, it injects microaggressions into our day for something that imagine not having access to Google in the fields that we're in. It's a critical tool. You could use Bing and other ones. But when you think about the top three search engines, if they're all using the same type of tools in the same exact way, you're right. going to have a large part of the population that are going to be dealing with these microaggressions every day. And same thing for people with disabilities, like what they're going to encounter there and LGBTQ people, uh, what they're encountering there. And these things bring up a lot of bias. And when you think about how a lot of these algorithms are now being used to replace human decision-making to cut costs and expedite processes, you realize there's not a lot of room for people to be able to have recourse if the algorithm makes a wrong decision or right. makes a biased decision. Absolutely. It makes me think of, I know you've seen this, uh, it wasn't a study, it was a reality about the automated faucets that were not oh, responding yes. to dark skinned hands. And I always have this moment of nervousness as I go to even wash my hands. Is this going to recognize me as human and deserving of water to wash my hands? And yes. someone, you know, when we think of testing and, and the information that goes in, because all of this is data driven, mm -hmm. if we're not even participating or called to participate in the studies to test these new, um, the implementation of these technologies, where will we be? Well, yeah, where will we be? And you even think about things like, Amazon Echo with Alexa. I remember mm. one of the first times I saw, and it's not even just Alexa, it also goes to Siri. One of the first times I saw one of my friends who's Nigerian try to interact with Siri, Siri just kept telling him that she couldn't understand what he was saying. Mm. And granted, you know, first iterations, they try to reduce scope, but you think about for how many years these things could only respond to what's essentially like a certain type of race and class of America and leaving right. out everyone else in America and people all over the world. And 
the reason why I bring that up is as a product manager, I say part of our job is also to figure out how do we make money for the business and also identifying markets. And you really have to think while you have to have that initial scope and build up to things, you also have to think that when you are figuring out your initial scope, is your scope being unintentionally like biased? Is it discriminating against people by race or by possibly like how they spoke wherever they grew up, those sort of things. And you think about going to the cosmetics industry. When I was talking about markets, people for a very long time, so black people, other people of color for a very long time were asking for darker skin tones in the shades of makeup and the Mm. cosmetics industry for a very long time ignored them. And there are actually several lines by women of color that have darker shades that are doing really well. And then Fenty came along and Mm. they released their own line and it did so phenomenally. The next week you saw all the very top tier, very expensive makeup brands showing off their shade of the, the rainbow, even though it still ended still early, they didn't make any new colors. They just wanted to get on the bandwagon. Hey, we have, we have these darker colors too. Right. (laughs) <laughs> right. And it's too little too late because it finally when we yeah. make our own way and actually show that not only it's possible, but that it is profitable. This is the thing that confounds me, too. So racism, inclusion, bias aside, it's bad for business, you know, so that that yes. almighty green generally uh, wins out. So it's a bad for the bottom line to not be inclusive because of the global majority of people who are black and brown. So that just makes sense to me. We hope you're enjoying this edition of Tech Intersect. Our conversation will continue in a moment, but first, a word on an exciting opportunity. The Tech Intersect podcast is released to the public every Friday. But as an Advantage Evans member, you'll receive first listen access and live Tech Intersect Connect video chats. Premium members also receive a copy of my ebook, The Gen Xer's Guide to Upskilling in a Web 3.0 World, and unlimited access to the video chat replays and bonus episodes. My pro members, ready to leverage what they've listened to and learned, receive access to the Upskilling Self-Guided Course and VIP group coaching calls. So as you can see, Advantage Evans membership adds substantial value to your podcast experience. And there are three ways to take advantage. (laughs) See what I did right there? Of all that the Tech Intersect podcast has to offer. So subscribe now and let's listen, learn, and leverage together. And now, back to the conversation. As we were going through, I was teeing up some of my notes of some of the other examples. And so, and I talked about this uh, recently on the Lit Podcast about Google having this program. So it's the opposite of the faucet experience of going out to scan the faces of homeless, mostly black and brown people to do quote unquote field research for its facial scan system. And in exchange for taking pictures of people experiencing homelessness, I should, uh, should say instead, they were given a $5 gift certificate for the facial scan. And so when it is profitable for them to include people, although is this really inclusion, I'm using air quotes, that they're being intentional about scanning people and uh, taking advantage of marginalized people 
to give them a $5 gift certificate. I think it was to Starbucks. So that didn't even make sense to me because what do you buy there anyway? But they can be intentional in this instance, not in others. So, you know, I call BS on not knowing that that other people exist and should be included in the experience. And and that's one example of them. Yes. And I mean, it really shows that even when these people think, oh, well, we haven't been including this group of people. They aren't even thinking of the creative process correctly. They're not, oh, like who's even on our team internally helping us build this sort of thing? Or maybe we should even pay a company like Tonal, which they do stock imagery for people of color, especially black people. And you think Mm -hmm. like they have so many different faces. They have so many images and that's a really good source. And not that we don't want to help people who are marginalized and that kind of thing, but the way in which they did it was so disgusting to me. And it wasn't really real help. It was kind of like a half, half measure to really just get what they need. And again, it's like the whole, like not having empathy and not thinking about what is actually, what is actually helpful for these people. And, you know, like, so you can't pay, you can't pay someone who's a black or brown person who is buying an Android phone, but you're going to give a $5 gift card to a homeless person instead of doing a donation to a homeless shelter or doing Mm. something about the homeless problem in a place like San Francisco. Right, right. So there's just so, so much there. It's important to continue conversations to increase awareness because the idea where people don't know that they don't know, then that gives people the opportunity to course correct. So for those who are open, willing to not only see and acknowledge the issues and the, the fact that the data that goes in drives what comes out. And we talk about it in some sense on the blockchain side of garbage in, garbage out. And we think about that data structure, but that can be said of a number of different technologies on what data set are you relying in order to drive the technology. So even that decision is critically important. And who's around the table, <laughs> oh, a- as you said. So moving from bias in tech to inclusion in the tech space, both on the technologist side, so the software developers and stack builders as well, and then on the non-technology side, I'm not a technologist, but I certainly work in the space. Let's talk about the fact that we have often been the first or the only on our respective career paths, both corporate America and technology and also on the education side. And of course, many of the conferences, and you mentioned um, South by where we met, although it tends to be one of the more inclusive to be sure, but there are many event spaces that we are in regularly that are far from diverse. Mm, well, I can't even say that. I was about to say I've never felt excluded, but there are many places that as long as I talk the talk, walk the walk, I might be curious. <laughs> I mean, they're curious of like, how did you get here? But I've had a relatively good experience under the circumstances, but I have to constantly check assumptions and to check what it means to be inclusive, merely building something and passively hoping that someone like me or you happens upon the space is not you know, a decided effort to be inclusive. So Talk to the listeners about what your experience is there. And also we'll kind of move to some ways that listeners can be more intentional about finding spaces, or if you're running a space, being inclusive for voices and perspectives and people. So so what does that look like for you? And then more broadly for women, uh, people of color, LGBT community in my case, et cetera. Yes. I think one of the most important things that people don't realize until 
they're in a situation where they feel either attacked and or embarrassed and not saying they are attacked. I'm just saying they personally feel attacked is realizing when someone calls them out essentially on, on their bias. And that sometimes is the first time that person realizes their privilege, whether it's their privilege as a cis hetero person, as a white person, it's not until sometimes that happens, but then it comes this thing where they expect that person to educate them about what's going on. And I think one of the most important things is people to take time, whether it's once a month or whatever they need to do, because people take time to read all these business books, to, you know, listen to podcasts, but learn something, go down a rabbit hole. And it's okay to quietly go through Google to educate yourself on some of these things about why you shouldn't touch a black woman's hair, anyone's hair for that matter, but why you shouldn't do certain things, why you shouldn't say certain things. I had a conversation with someone the other day where we were discussing the, the number of visas that were not approved for this conference, this data science AI conference that happens in Canada every year, where a lot of the people who are from Africa and different African, well, from different mm-hmm. African countries were denied visas. And their response was, well, a lot of them are probably from poor countries. So there's probably a risk that, you know, they might not come back. And I tried to point out to them, well, that in itself is bias. And they thought, well, no, because that happens all the time. And I was explaining, well, if you are an AI expert in any country in the world, chances are you're not living at the bottom of society in whatever country it is. And they just couldn't get it out of their mind that the main reason could be racism here. Mm -hmm. And it's the kind of things like that where people don't take it upon themselves to educate themselves. And I think it's very important for people to create their own curriculum and kind of find like where these gaps are in their own education because most people, most of us haven't taken sociology classes. Most of us haven't talked to someone about these sort of issues. And if that's not a part of your community and you're not educating yourself about that, then you're kind of out there forwarding these, these issues, even if unknowingly. And one of the conferences I've been to that I've found to be the most inclusive is right speak code. And they take inclusion very seriously. And to be a speaker there, I remember I had to go through speaker training, which there, I don't mm. think there's been a single event I've ever been to where the speaker had to go through training. We had to go through a code of conduct training. And one of the things that really stuck out to me about the training was that they stated very clearly, we prioritize the voice of the marginalized person over the voice of the person with the most privilege. And that's Mm. very important because you have people with different types of disabilities. You obviously have people of color, you have people in all these different intersections of life. And, you know, you can't say, well, most of the people in this room aren't deaf. So it doesn't really matter that the host of this talk said, can you hear me? Because that's Mm. actually an ableist statement. And those are things where I didn't realize it until and I wasn't the host of that event. I didn't realize it until I actually heard someone actually was the sign language interpreter complain after a talk to the organizers about the, somebody saying, can you hear me? And the way the organizers received that, I was mm. so impressed because 
frankly, I'm so used to the opposite. And granted, I went through the training. I knew what Right Speak Code was about, but it was just astonishing. And it's really also saying like, in terms of you want to be an inclusive environment, really telling everybody, if you're going to be in this space, here are the standards we adhere to. And we're Mm going to walk the walk. We're not just going to talk the talk because it's one thing to say, Hey, hey, Tanya, I really value your opinion. If anything happens, tell me. It's another thing to go to all your employees and say explicitly, here is what we value. Here is why we value it. And if this happens, let's say you're the person in the wrong, here is how we expect you to deal with it. And then here's what might happen if, you know, we have to come to you about it. And I think that a lot of companies kind of wash over it because it's really just more so on the HR legal side of things that if it really came to it, what would they have to do to prevent themselves from being sued? I mean, not saying right sweet code is about that, but a lot of corporations are in that situation. But if you really want to be inclusive, I think even just like making it very clear what that means to your company, because most companies are not going to make that clear because they're afraid of excluding the people who feel very privileged already. Mm -hmm. They, you know, I think that is a way to be very inclusive with your environment, but again, actually backing it up after you've said it. It reminds me, not only, uh, there are a couple of things, but to your last point, to those who, you know, it's, it's a quote, I'm, Uh, blanking on who actually said it, but to those who experience privilege, uh, equality feels like oppression. Yes. Because there's this sense of loss back to what should have been before. And it also makes me think of a recent episode. It's episode um, three with Andreas Antonopoulos, when he actually gets really, really honest about inclusion or the lack of inclusion and how much pushback he received in the form of a tweet firestorm mm. when he reached out. First, there, there were actually two tweets, long story short, and I'll drop in the show notes, go back to uh, episode three listeners to hear more of what Andrea said about this. But he and I discussed this um, recent tweet storm in response to his intentionally provocative, as he said, tweet that invited suggestions for podcasts. The first was just in asking for who's out there, who's in the space, I want to go on some new shows and like 90%, 95%, the overwhelming majority came back within the hour, as he described it, white American men in finance. Wow. And so his second tweet after enough of that, he's like, okay, great, great. I've either done those or they're already on my radar. Now <laughs> I want to receive something different. So suggestions for diverse podcasts uh, that he would appear on. And he got, people were writing back, even some really, people who I really respected. So it was actually quite disappointing, Mm. but it exposed the underbelly in the blockchain space in particular. For those who don't know, Andreas Antonopoulos is a major OG in the the blockchain space in general, uh, Bitcoin in particular. And it exposed uh, a a whole range of things from people of color and women aren't really into it. And that's why you don't see them to um, you're being racist and sexist by pointing out that you don't want to hear from white men. And he said, I didn't say that. I said someone other than like, I got all of them. Now let's be more diverse. Let's increase the tent. And, um, you know, at the end, he did it intentionally. He accomplished his goal to find podcasts like Tech Intersect, which is why he was on my show. That was the whole point. Um, Not, you know, to the exclusion of, but in addition to, and even that, 
felt like oppression to people who were already privileged. So that just is another, you know, example of your point. Yeah. And one of the things that to what you were just saying, people even saying that, oh, women and people of color aren't into blockchain, which is hilarious given the number of women and women of color uh, you and Absolutely. I, just between us, know in in the blockchain space. And one of the consistent stories that I hear out of it is people who went to go work for, uh, I'll say like white male owned blockchain companies and maybe mm. lasted a year or two and chose to leave their company or you know, the, co- the company, which is not a fit for them any longer and they right. couldn't stay. And the, it pretty much being like, if you're going to be in blockchain and be a woman and a women, woman of color or just a person of color, you kind of have to start your own thing because mm-hmm. while people may not necessarily be trying to be intentionally racist in this space, which maybe I'll say there are right. some people who are, but that's everywhere right. that it's right now the conversation about inclusion in the blockchain space is so poor and warped that mm-hmm. it's just easier to either start your own thing or get into a different part of it. But actually working for some of these blockchain companies as a woman or a woman, especially I would say, especially a woman of color is it's almost not even worth it for our well-being. Right, right. And so that's an important final point before we close out. Let's talk a little bit about, we've talked about the why it may be in the best interest of a woman in general, women of color in particular, to um, find their entrepreneurial spirit and find their way in the space. Um, That is a really critical point at this point in time, because we're really relatively early in the Web 3.0 build. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people missed the the uh, internet explosion, right? And all the dot coms. And before we knew it, 90% of them were gone and we'd moved on. You know, that's the end of the 20th century. And now here we are 20 years into the 21st century. You know, why it's important to participate is kind of a foregone conclusion. The how is a little more tricky, but for women, what are some of the examples of things maybe on the technologist and the non-technologist side, and we can kind of brainstorm together, that people should get curious about, women, women of color, and how to participate, whether or not you can code. You know, coding is awesome. I think everybody actually should learn, but that doesn't translate into being a software developer. I agree. Example. So what do you think about that? Yeah. So I think that what you were saying, it's it's incredibly important, and I just I want to kind of actually give an, a specific example of right now, in speaking what you were saying, it is very early days, but kind of like the internet, there became a point in which if you didn't understand how the internet worked or didn't understand how to use the internet, you pretty much weren't qualified for any of the hot jobs. And right. while AI, machine learning, blockchain are all just tools, they are things that at some point, there will be enough use of them that if you don't really understand what's going on there, your ability to have experience in those places when they're going to start asking for someone with five years of experience already doing some of these things in blockchain or like 10 years, those sort of things, they're going to look at you and say, well, okay, you've, you've never gotten into this space. And like, I agree with what you said in terms of learning to code is right. really important. I think that people should learn to code just because it becomes really important for you learning whatever the next, next technology is. And additionally, just for, for us economically, 
things change right. very rapidly and things are only changing even quicker now than ever. Right. And there's going to come a point in which the things that we learn to do to have the jobs we have now are going to be obsolete in some way, shape or form. It's just the specific skills that we have together, we can repackage them right. to work with what the new economy is going to be. But how they exist today will not work for us 20 years from now. And both of my parents, right. I mentioned earlier in the podcast, my dad's an electrical engineer, my mom's a chemist. Well, my mom's retired now, but they both used to work for a very large innovation science corporation. And mm-hmm. one of the things that I saw when my parents were like late 40s, early 50s, is there were big layoffs and several people in their late 40s, early 50s really struggled to find new jobs because their job was relevant at their corporation, but it wasn't relevant to a lot of other companies around. Mm. And you had people who were was still way too early to retire who could not find jobs at the same pay grade they were used to. And that to me was very startling because... I was thinking, oh, what am I supposed to do if I get laid off? And I came from mm-hmm. my when I grew up, I thought, oh, okay, I can work for a big company, work there for near my, nearly my whole life, and retire, and not have to do a lot of hustling in between. Which I know, mm-hmm. Tanya, you know, you know me now. Which is now I do a lot of hustling because I know that's not true. But at one right. point, I really thought that that was a reality. And in where we are now, especially as women of color, you don't really have to get laid off when you're 40 to have a hard time finding a new job. I've heard of people right. who get laid off at 25, who really struggle to find a new job. People who get laid off at 35, who struggle finding a new job and will have like a year gap in income. And really having these skills is still, still going to be an uphill climb to engage with the workforce and be in the workforce and deal with the pressures and stresses of the workforce just that are there and plus as a woman of color, but you're going to really need these to be in such demand that people it's still, you're still going to struggle, but to be in such demand that people can't deny you in which you will still have a way to have streams of income, whether it's your hustling or whether you're at a corporate job or whether it's like you're figuring out whatever your next, next job is. And you don't want the skills you have now to become obsolete, you need to find a way to build on them. Like I said earlier in the podcast, I studied engineering. One of the best things about studying engineering was I learned an object-oriented program. Oh yeah, so I learned C++ as my first language. But since then I learned Java and then I learned Python. And Python is really great for data science. And so that's actually how I learned to act more about AI and data science and how the models Mm -hmm. work and how you look at the data and like run it through your model. And those are things where you have to kind of take those skills that you were given and learn how to apply them today. Because when I was in college, no one was talking about AI. And those are things where for us to continue to be competitive in the workforce and as businesses, we really need to have these competitive edges and getting in before This is something where people just expect that you know this and you're one of the few people who doesn't. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the lead out here or the takeaways, one is to educate yourself in the space, two, to understand and believe in your own potential, 
three, to understand the challenges that exist, but also four, to understand that there are a lot of opportunities, but they're only going to come if you prepare yourself. We talked about, you know, upskilling, using the term now, but really preparing yourself, not just for where you are now, but leveraging your existing expertise in order to be ready, one, for the jobs that don't exist yet, but absolutely for the ones that already do. And so understanding where we are at the intersection of law, business, and technology, how tech is moving forward, and our role and place as women, women of color in it, and allyship around it. Because it's important for you or me or women uh, that are in underrepresented constituencies, but it's even more impactful for those who are decision makers currently to be proactive about increasing the tent, as I've said uh, earlier, and also holding people accountable rather than the, the person who is experiencing the lack of inclusion or diversity, but others who have a responsibility to be held accountable. If accountability is not a part of the, the equation, then that makes it a far more difficult proposition. Uh, and absolutely right. I, I thank you so much for being on Tech Intersect. And where I want to have a final note is how the listeners can connect with you and your work and any final comments that you want to share. Yes. So you can reach me. Uh, my website is antgriffin.com. So A N N E T G R I F F I N.com. Um, I'm also on Twitter at antgriffin. A-N-N-E-T-G-R-I-F-F-I-N. And also my website has a forum, so you would be able to email me. My Actually, my email is on the website, so you should just go there if you would like to email me and discuss. And I also advise startups, uh, both AI and blockchain. Uh, one of the startups I'm advising right now is a fashion startup that uses AI to give you really great recommendations for things you should buy and wear. And they don't ship you anything, which I really love because while Stitch Fix and those other companies are really great, I don't have time to mail things <laughs> to and fro. And so uh, that's that's one thing I'm really excited about I'm already working on. But I, like I said, I'm open to advising other startups as well. And also public speaking, talking about empathy and in the creative process and AI blockchain. Um, I do a course on O'Reilly called Business Applications of Blockchain. So I'm open to other speaking engagements as well. Outstanding. Well, my friend, my comrade, my partner in power, I appreciate you very much for being on this episode of Tech Intersect. We're definitely going to do that AMA. I don't know when. Um, I'll have my people call your people, but let's do it. I'm there. (laughs) I'm there. Thank you. Anne believes that empathy at the product level and a cultural level is a key value, and I certainly agree. We don't often hear that word, though, empathy, used when discussing innovation in the tech space. But the best companies focus on the sweet spot between the business's bottom line and solving problems with features that benefit the consumer without exploiting them in the process. We also talked about why it's critically important for women in general and women of color in particular to ensure a seat at the tech table, the tech table of the future. You have to understand the language of technology and develop skill sets based on your current expertise to be prepared for and relevant in the future of business and work in a Web 3.0 world. So pick a lane, find your own shine, and prepare to be a powerhouse in the new economy. Figure out how to leverage your existing skills. Develop new skills, upskill or reskill, 
Whatever we call it, inclusion is a bottom line proposition for business, and it's also critical to ensure that bias is more marginalized than the underestimated. Okay, that's it for this episode of Tech Intersect. Until next time, continue to shine. Stay in touch with host Tanya Evans via your favorite social media on Twitter at at Tech Intersect and on Instagram via the handle Tech Intersect. This podcast has been produced by Stephanie Renee for Soul Sanctuary Incorporated.